This is Condopedia. Here, we talk about everything related to condo law in Ontario, with hopefully some humor mixed in. Well, welcome everyone. Can you believe, wow, it has been a year already since our first virtual holiday Q&A. It's just delightful to see so many people joining us again. I'm seeing lots of familiar names from last year and from our condo crunch sessions. Our numbers are still climbing, but we're starting to stabilize a bit. So we're gonna go ahead and get ourselves started. We hope that you also enjoyed our intro video. For those of you who were here last year, you may have remember uh, that we uh, had different pictures. So this year we tried to freshen ourselves up and be a little bit more modern. So we hope you enjoyed that. So again, this past year has been jam-packed with all sorts of virtual educational sessions, and we're delighted to now do the last educational session of 2021, being our holiday Q&A. This year, though, we've decided not to have a competition for the dress-up because, of course, you know, I don't know if I can handle it if Melinda won twice in a year in a row, and that tree, that tree has taken the prize. So instead, we decided to do something a little bit different this year. We decided to focus on something along the lines of the 12 days of Christmas, but condo lawyer style. So today, as each of us tackles our questions from the community, and thank you for sending in such great questions, we're also going to present each of our gifts or wishes that we have for the industry this coming year. So as moderator of today's session, because I always like to go first, I'm going to start off with my wish for this coming year. Above all else, I am wishing for our condo community to treat each other with increased professionalism, kindness, and empathy in the coming year. It's been a really difficult couple of years for a lot of us in the community. And unfortunately, as a result, we've seen some increased tensions in the condominium communities across Eastern Ontario and throughout the province and probably throughout Canada. We've heard of some increased situations of harassment of board members, managers, and sometimes each other. So as we move forward in 2022, and hopefully we start to see a little bit of a light towards the end of this pandemic, we're hoping we can all start towards restoring harmonious relationships in those communities that have been in crisis. Let's work hard to remember that we work together to build these communities and we're all going to benefit if we are more professional, empathetic, and above all, kind to each other. So on that note, kindness, let's talk about one of the kindest things that we can do, which is to have wonderfully, beautifully wrapped, brand new, fresh bylaws under the tree. I'm teasing. Nobody gets excited about new bylaws under the tree. But that is going to be our gift to start us off with from Jim Davidson. Now, Jim, unfortunately, was called away unexpectedly, so he's not able to present his bylaw session. So I am going to try and um, step into some very big shoes, and I'm going to try and emulate Mr. Davidson and do his three questions for you. I know it won't be as good as Jim, but I'll do my very best. So his first question is, can we provide a list of recommended bylaws? So in true Jim fashion, I'm going to start out with a slide or sharing my screen. You know me, I don't usually have a slide, so I tried to make sure that I did the true gym emulation. So can we provide a list of recommended bylaws? Well, first and foremost, if you want to see some of the reasons for doing these bylaws, you can check out our blog from June 28th, 2021. But here's the list of the most recommended. First of all, make sure your comprehensive operating bylaw is up to date. And by up to date, you want to take a look at that comprehensive operating bylaw and make sure that you're dealing with all of these key issues. 
Of course, the entire bylaw has to be consistent with the Condominium Act 1998, and it also has to be consistent with your declaration. In your hierarchy of documents, remember that our Condo Act comes first, then our declaration, and then our bylaws. So ensure consistency. Make sure you have a properly worded provision for the indemnification of your directors and officers. Make sure though you remove some of those old weird provisions about protection for directors and officers. You wanna make sure you have proper indemnification, but not that old wording that doesn't really actually provide for fulsome indemnification. Make sure you've taken your rules out of your bylaws. Remember rules shouldn't be in bylaws. Rules are, are um, governed by section 58 of the act. So you wanna make sure they're out of your bylaws so you can amend as needed following that procedure. You make sure, of course, that you also talk about your management agreements and that the board of directors has exclusive authority to make sure that they're negotiating those agreements and hiring managers as needed. Confirming that budgets, of course, are not approved by your owners. Making sure that you've got staggering or leapfrogging in your terms for directors to make sure that there's consistency on the board. And then contemplating different types of qualification provisions that you might want to have on your board in your uh, bylaws for board members. Some economy and corporations prefer to have absolutely no provisions for qualifications in their in their governing documents, except those that are included in the condominium act. But in your community, you might want to have some specific qualifications. For example, you might want to say board members must be owners. Other communities like to allow tenants to sit on the board. It's really up to you as a community if you want to increase the qualifications for uh, directors to sit on the board of directors. Again, talking about indemnifications by owners in the event that owners have caused the corporation to incur costs unnecessarily, make sure you have a nice strong indemnification provision there. And we we're going to hear a bit more about indemnification later on. So that's just a little bit of a teaser for some later discussion. Making sure that uh, you have a provision dealing with the use of common elements by owners who have rented out their units. Uh, for example, if you want to make sure that you're restricting the use of the swimming pool by someone who has rented out their unit so that only the tenant is using the swimming pool and not the uh, non-resident owner. Enhancing provisions for unit inspections, requiring that owners provide the corporation notice of defects or other types of issues in the, uh, the unit. And of course, allowing for the new and improved electronic and virtual meeting provisions. We know that virtual meetings are probably here to stay in some way, shape or form, including a hybrid version. So make sure that your documents are up to date in that respect. So that's the first bylaw that you wanna make sure that you have in place, an up-to-date comprehensive operating bylaw. The next one to consider are standard unit bylaws. Of course, as we all know, the condominium insurance industry is in a bit of a hullabaloo. And again, stay tuned for more on that later on. So make sure you have your standard unit bylaw and your insurance deductible bylaw in good order to make sure that you can deal with those issues. Next is section 98 bylaw. Your section 98 bylaw is your modification to common elements bylaw. And if you wanna hear all about that, you go ahead over to our condo law news blog and look at one of our recent condo crunches where we did a full section on modifications to the common elements and what those bylaws should look like. I think it was actually our last session. So it's a pretty relatively recent podcast that you can listen to on that topic. And finally, a DNO liability bylaw. This bylaw, of course, is to make sure that your bylaws require that you have sufficient directors and officers liability coverage, which may go above and beyond the requirements of the Condominium Act. For example, ensuring that you have human rights coverage for situations where there may be human rights claims which have been invoked, and that your bylaws cover current and past 
directors as well. I'm going to stop sharing my screen as we have completed our list of our most key recommended bylaws. And as per usual with Jim Davidson's question, you might want to stay tuned for a potential blog coming out, which just might include some of that list. So stay tuned for that. We did have two other questions on bylaws that I'll touch on, and I'll just read the first question. Can a condominium corporation legally switch to an adults-only condominium with appropriate legacy exceptions for existing residents? The short answer in Ontario is no. Adults-only condominium corporations are not permitted in Ontario. There's an old Ontario decision, York Condominium Corporation versus Dudnick, which confirmed that adults-only provisions are not permitted because they discriminate on the basis of family status. Now, I have heard this is permitted in BC, and I recently visited BC, and it was pretty beautiful. So if that's something you're contemplating, maybe take a little bit of a trip out there and see what they do out in BC. The next question, is a bylaw needed for a lease of part of the common elements? Depending on the type of lease you are granting, again, the short answer is yes. Section 21 of the Condominium Act does require that if you're leasing portions of the common elements, that you are required to pass a bylaw to allow those portions to be leased. The only exception relates to telecommunication agreements. Under Section 22 of the Act, there are exceptions which allow for certain types of telecommunications agreements, which contain leasing provisions to be exempted from the requirement to pass a new bylaw. They can be tricky issues, these, these telecommunications agreements. So uh, again, if you're contemplating that, make sure you talk to your handy, uh, handy dandy legal counsel. So those are the bylaw issues that I tried to step in and, and fill for Jim D. Uh, and if you have any questions on those issues, again, stay tuned for a blog. I have a feeling that we might see one in the new year on that particular subject. So now let's turn to our first substantive topic, substantive topic from one of our other presenters here today, and that is Cheryl. Cheryl, I understand that you have both some fun information and maybe a wish to share with us. That is correct, Nancy. So my topic today relates to rogue owners and rogue directors. Um, now, when we think of rogue, we can often think of bad intentions, but that's not always the case. I find that some difficulties can arise when a director or owner believe that they're acting for the benefit of others. However, their actions can come with risks and negative consequences if it becomes excessive. Um, so today I'm going to talk about um, two types of um, owners or directors, one being the oversharer and the other being the backseat driver. So for the oversharer, what can be done when a board member reveals information that they received um, as a part of their duties on the board? So as an example, let's think about a director that ran for the board to help with transparency. So they obtain information and then they provide this information to the owners and it could be about board discussions, in-camera discussions, or other matters that, that arise at a board meeting. So this can be problematic when it come, whether it comes from a good place or not. As a general rule, board meetings are private. Owners are not entitled to attend except by invitation of the board. And there's a really good reason, well, there's a couple of good reasons for this. First, some board deliberations must be kept closed for reasons of privilege, privacy, or confidentiality. Additionally, directors could, should be free to argue, disagree, persuade, and be persuaded in their discussions, and then arrive at a decision that is then supported by all of the directors. 
So in my view, owners don't need to see this decision-making process that goes on. They don't need to know that director A and contractor B um, or director A doesn't like contractor B or that director C had an argument with director D about a potential rule that the corporation is going to pass. That, in my view, is not um, in the best interest of the community as a whole. The board should be allowed to... um, have its own private decision-making process that's then followed by a decision that's supported by the board. A director that shares confidential information, even in the interest of transparency, may not realize that their actions come with risks for the corporation in the form of possible legal action or dissension in the community. There is a court decision that looks at the duties of a director and has confirmed a couple of um, key points with respect to Uh, being a reasonably prudent director. One is a reasonably prudent director of a condominium corporation attempting to meet his or her responsibilities as a director would not undermine board decisions. And a reasonably prudent director acting in good faith would not make the board dysfunctional, would not promote antagonism and dissent on the board. So this was a case where a director disagreed with a decision made by the majority of the board and then began actively campaigning against the steps being taken by the board. And the director was found to be in breach of his duties in those circumstances. So while directors are entitled to disagree and debate positions at the board meetings, they should not be actively campaigning against the decisions made by the board unless the decisions clearly go against the interests of the condominium as a whole. And they should also not be sharing information without consensus of the board. So what happens when a director goes rogue and provides confidential information about board discussions or board business to owners? First, it would be important to speak with the director to express the importance of maintaining confidentiality and supporting board decisions. There are clear provisions in the CCI Code of Ethics that deal with these issues. We often find it's helpful to have new board members review and sign the Code of Ethics. Some condos, uh, some condo bylaws even require this. After that, if the issues continue, it will depend on the condo and the bylaw on the next steps. Some condos will have a bylaw that addresses uh, what happens if there's a breach of the Code of Ethics. Others might not, and you might have to look to the provisions set out at section 33 of the act with respect to removal of a director. So that is the oversharer. Now I'm gonna look at the backseat driver. So this could be an owner that is overzealous in demanding information from the board. It can be an attempt to make sure that the board is fulfilling its obligations. And while owners are entitled to information, there comes a point where excessive requests, questions, and communication can be problematic and can even result in increased costs for the condominium corporation. So let me begin by confirming that owners do have plenty of rights with respect to the sharing of information um, within the corporation. Owners have the right to request and receive records of the corporation in accordance with Section 55 of the Act. Owners also have the right to receive information from the corporation, including various notices, financial statements, and information certificates. And owners are also entitled to raise any matter relevant to the affairs of the corporation at the AGM or to requisition a meeting to inquire about certain matters. Also, most condominium corporations are content to provide answers 
to occasional reasonable questioning from owners. Although this is not a legal obligation, most condominium corporations are happy to do that. Having said that, condos are not otherwise obligated to deal with frequent, excessive, or demanding communications from an owner. Volunteer board members simply don't have the time or energy for such communications, and the corporation doesn't have the resources to pay extra amounts to a manager to handle these communications. So to summarize, while owners are rightfully entitled to information and records from the corporation, as set out in the Act, condominium owners do not have a right of unlimited communication with the board of directors. As an example, owners don't have the right to expect answers to numerous questions posed to the board and communications from owners, if excessive or unreasonable, may reach the point of harassment. So if this is something that your condominium is facing, a good first step is trying to communicate with the owner as to why the requests being received are excessive and what information the board is able to provide. If that doesn't work, the corporation could consider passing a communication policy or a rule to set out um, communication with the board and this would apply to all owners and it can specifically refer to excessive communication and how that's going to be dealt with. And then if the matter continues to escalate, the corporation should likely consult legal counsel to consider what further steps might be taken. So those are my uh, overshare and backseat driver. Um, looking at my wish, Nancy, um, my wish relates to cost recovery. I know there's a longstanding principle in condominium law that costs that are incurred because of a violation by the owner should be borne by that owner in order to protect the innocent owners in the condominium. Most condominium corporations also have indemnification provisions that support this principle. However, under the current CAT rules, as we know, the CAT will not order costs, um, uh, legal costs uh, incurred by a condominium or a user of the CAT uh, process, unless there are exceptional reasons to do so. So my wish, especially with the expanding jurisdiction of the CAT, is that the CAT begins to award legal costs. I think that the risk of having to pay costs in the event of a violation can serve to encourage compliance. And I also think that there's more motivation to resolve a conflict earlier when there's a risk of costs. So that's my wish. A good wish, Cheryl. And I think that wish is probably echoed by many, many, many in the industry. I think it's an important one. And Cheryl also mentioned another bylaw to consider. Again, the ones that we talked about earlier on are the key ones that we're recommending to get you uh, into compliance with the current provisions of the Condo Act. But the bylaw related to codes of ethics is another good one to be thinking about, uh, particularly if you have any concerns about any rogue situations in your community. Now, we're not going to talk about rogue situations in the next one, but we're definitely talking about a hot smoking topic. Uh, Melinda, I'm going to turn it over to you for our next topic. Sounds good. Thanks, Nancy. So the question I received is, what is the legislation that applies in Ontario related to smoking in condominiums? And what is an owner's obligation when smoke is transferred from unit to unit or on the exterior of the building, like from a balcony or a patio? So to start with, the legislation that applies to uh, condominiums in Ontario is called the Smoke-Free Ontario Act. And with respect to condominiums, it tells us that smoking is, is prohibited in the indoor common element areas. That's the main takeaway. It also tells us if you have a condominium that happens to have a restaurant on the property, some of the high-rise buildings might have that 
there's no smoking on the restaurant patio, obviously, but the main takeaway from the legislation is that um, there's no smoking on indoor common element areas. Beyond this though, the legislation doesn't regulate smoking inside units, on balconies or on outside common element areas. So to regulate these other areas, we would need, the, the condominium would need to pass a rule. So to determine an owner's obligations outside of the legislation, we, we look to see if the condominium has a rule that would be uh, prohibiting that particular owner from smoking. So one new point to be aware of with respect to smoking rules is that they typically contain what used to be referred to as a grandfathering provision. So it's a provision that allows smokers that lived on the property at the time the rule was passed to continue smoking for a period of time, even though the rule now prohibits smoking. So the current trend, and you heard Nancy mention this earlier, is that we've moved away from using the term grandfathering provision, uh, given that it has a sorted past, and the new term that's being used is called a legacy provision. So it's just a point to be aware of when we're talking about these smoking rules. So the, the first uh, place that we would start would be to check the rule to see if the owner uh, is covered by a legacy provision to smoke in the unit. If not, then the owner has no right to smoke in the unit, assuming that a rule prohibiting smoking has been uh, passed. And so you'd be dealing with a compliance issue. And the condominium has an obligation to take steps to seek the owner's compliance with the rule. So presumably there would be a requirement for them to smoke in an outdoor designated smoking area. If the owner is allowed to smoke in the unit, which I think is what the question was really getting to. Um, so if the owner is allowed to smoke in the unit, but complaints are being received about smoke transfer, the, the analysis gets a bit more complicated. But as a, as a first step, um, steps can be taken to figure out what is causing the smoke transfer. So um, our rule, uh, if there is a rule passed, requires smokers to take steps to ensure that their smoke isn't a nuisance. So the one of the things that we look for is whether the, the smoker is using um, an air purifier to try and limit or reduce their smoke transfer. Other steps that can be taken um, would be to make sure that the owners aren't disrupting how air transfer or air handling happens in the building. This is often a concern in high-rise buildings. So the unit that is receiving the smoke shouldn't run their exhaust fans in the unit because it can depressurize the unit and that draws smoke into the unit. And then the source of the, the smoke, so the source unit, shouldn't be leaving their windows open when they smoke because it can pressurize their unit and force smoke out of the unit into the uh, uh, receiving unit. So if, if, though, if you've looked into those issues and these points don't resolve um, the complaint, the condo can also investigate whether there's a potential defect that might be causing the smoke transfer. But if none of these sources, so if there's no defect, um, the units are properly pressurized, the owner appears to be using an air purifier, if none of these sources um, are, are resolving the issue, the smoker does have an obligation to take further action since in our view, and the courts have confirmed this, that smoke transfer is considered um, an unsafe condition. And so it contravenes section um, 117 under the Condominium Act. So options that can be taken and discussed at that point would be things like 
having the uh, smoker cease smoking altogether in the unit or smoking in an outdoor designated uh, smoking area. We've oft also seen a situation where um, a smoker installed a specialized smoking chamber in their unit to um, continue to smoke in their unit without having issues of smoke transfer. So um, those are my comments about smoking. Um, smoking can be complicated, but um, that's sort of a higher level perspective of how we approach those problems and what owner obligations are. In terms of my wish, um, similar to what Cheryl talked about, I'm thinking about uh, money related to condos as well. And so I'm looking forward to certain amendments to the Condominium Act related to indemnification that would allow a condominium to make chargeback for compliance issues without the need, without a complicated process. So without the need for uh, a court order, for example. Because um, in, in my view, and I, our firm takes this position all the time, the other innocent owners in a compliance issue shouldn't be put to any expense as a result of one, uh, one unit owner's non-compliance. So making it easier for condominiums to charge back costs that are incurred related to a specific owner's non-compliance is the most efficient way, in my view, to deal with compliance issues. So that's, uh, that's my wish. Thank you, Melinda. And I agree. Those go hand in hand and really important concepts. Those in, the innocent owners really shouldn't be negatively affected. So thank you so much, Melinda. And smoking, always a hot topic. Uh, and again, uh, someone had asked us if we could put some of the case references that we are citing during our discussion here today. And absolutely, we're happy to do so. Cheryl is just uploading into the chat the case reference that uh, she used during her presentation. So go ahead and copy that down. And uh, again, if you have any trouble accessing it, just let us know after the session and we'll make sure that you get a copy of that case reference. So Mohiminal, are you ready to tell us all about the cat and those dogs? Yes, absolutely. Thanks, Nancy. Um, <clears throat> so the question I have is, what is a reasonable time period to provide an owner or a resident uh, to remove a dog that was deemed a nuisance on the property? So in this particular condo, as in with many other condos, um, the governing documents include a provision that, say, that states that the condo will first provide a warning to an owner whose pet is deemed to be a nuisance and then will provide them with a two-week period if if the non-compliance persists, we'll provide them with a two-week period to remove the, the animal off the property. So is this reasonable? Um, my approach here in terms of my presentation will just be to provide some general comments, uh, a general overview of the situation with respect to uh, pet provisions and condominiums governing documents, and also just provide some general comments with respect to things that condominium corporations may want to consider when they look to enforce these provisions. Um, because as we know, with many other things in, in, in the condominium settings, um, it, it varies depending on the facts of the case, and each situation has to be addressed on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, so the first thing to note is that most residential condominiums have a pet provision part of their governing documents. So this can be either as part a provision in their declaration, or it can be a separate rule. And the condo's right to remove pets that are dangerous or that are otherwise causing nuisance is something that has been recognized both by the courts and more recently by the condominium authority tribunal, the CAT, no pun intended. Um, and as we know, since October 2020, the CAT has expanded its jurisdiction to include pets, parking and storage. Uh, this is in addition to the jurisdiction it previously had uh, with respect to records requests. So the condo's authority to enforce 
uh, pet provisions is something that stems in part from the Condominium Act. So provisions such as Section 17.2, which states that the condominium has a duty to control, administer, and manage the common elements and assets of the corporation. Section 17.4 of the Act, which states that the condominium uh, sorry, the corporation has to take reasonable steps to ensure that owners and occupiers of units comply with the act and the governing documents. And section 117, which prohibit the uh, dangerous activities in the units or the common elements. Um, I'm going to come back on the on the issue of reasonableness a little bit later. But so usually what we see often um, in the course of our, our practice is that oftentimes condos have a provision that usually includes a two week period um to for the owner to remove the uh, remove the pet off of the, from the property if the pet is deemed to be a nuisance now this period can vary depending on again the um the seriousness of the non-compliance the reoccurring nature of the non-compliance the facts at issue um and so on now uh, generally we tend to see a two-week notice period as I mentioned, the CAT has recognized that these provisions are enforceable. However, recent cases have also provided some additional clarity with respect to the time period that should be provided to owners and residents if there is a situation where a pet has to be removed from the property. So I have a few examples here. Um, in the case of MVLCC number 605 versus 2, um, this is a case where uh, an owner was allowing her shepherd dogs to run off their leash on the common elements. Um, it was a situation where the dogs charged towards other dogs in the condominium they were barking loudly at night they charged at some other owners and they uh there's also instances of the instances of the animals uh, defecating and urinating on the common elements and the owner not cleaning up um, the condo's governing documents included a provision that provided for a two-week period uh, for the owner to remove the pets off of the property What's interesting in this case is that the CAD didn't rely on that rule. They relied on Section 1.44 of the Condominium Act and provided the owner with 30 days to remove the, uh, the dogs, her dogs, off of the property. Similarly, in the case of Peel Condominium Corporation uh, number 96 versus uh, Sophimis, this is a situation where an owner brought a third German Shepherd dog. So she previously had two other German Shepherd dogs inside the unit. Um, the third dog, uh, was in non-compliance of the a weight limit that was imposed on animals on the property. It was a 40-pound weight limit, and the, the dog was beyond that weight limit. Um, so the corporation uh, commenced cat proceedings, and the cat ruled that the corporation was within its right to seek removal of the pet. Similarly to the Chu case, they also, the cat once again ordered a 30-day period. Um, the same principle also applied in the case of Halton Condominium Corporation versus Pekin. Um, this is a case, once again, uh, where a condo owner allowed her, her dog to uh, urinate and defecate on the exclusive use balcony, and she didn't clean up, thereby resulting in significant nuisance for the neighbors. Um, the cat ruled that the board should try and resolve this through communication. However, if it wasn't successful, then the board was within its right to seek removal of the pet, once again, within 30 days. So these recent decisions seem to indicate that 30 days seems to be a little bit more of a reasonable time period to ask an owner to remove a pet off of, off, off of the property. This does not mean that the two-week notice period that's included in, in several governing documents becomes invalid. Again, what's important for condominium corporations to keep in mind is 
you have to act reasonably when you're trying to enforce these provisions. And what is reasonable will vary depending on the facts of the case, depending on the seriousness of the non-compliance, and depending on the reoccurring nature or not of the non-compliance. Um, so again, um, you know, the two-week period is, is, is an absolute right. However, it's important for condominium corporations to be open to being flexible when enforcing these rules, and particularly with respect to the notice and the, the period provided to remove. Um, I also want to add a note here uh, with respect to service animals. Now, we know that service animals have to be permitted in a condominium corporation setting. So if you have an owner or a resident who is seeking accommodation for uh, seeking an, uh, a service animal or an emotional support animal, um, the condominium corporation generally has to allow it of course, provided that the owner has, has provided sufficient documentation supporting their request for an accommodation. Um, we've also had some recent uh, CAD decisions that are helpful in terms of understanding this, the, the, the context with respect to service animal and emotional support animals. Because these decisions say that owners of these animals still have to behave in a reasonable manner. What does that mean? So it means that the existence of a disability or a medical condition requiring an accommodation does not exempt a support animal or their owners from the obligation to abide by other existing rules. Now, the service animal still has to behave reasonably, and it has to um, and and it's possible that these animals can be removed from the property if they're not acting in a reasonable manner or if they're not in compliance with the existing rules. Now. Just going back to the Pakin case uh, that I mentioned a little bit earlier. Now, this was a case clearly where uh, the animal in question was an emotional support animal, but it was a case where clearly the owner was not taking steps to ensure that the animal was behaving in a reasonable manner. So she was not cleaning up after her dogs. Um, there was uh, urine and, and uh, dog feces on the balcony causing significant nuisance, damage to the property, and so on. So in that case, the CAT ruled that the board's decision to deem the animal a nuisance was reasonable, and the board was entitled to an order for the dog to be removed. Um, on that note, we believe it's a good idea for condominium corporations to consider approving a separate rule with respect to service animals and including um, appropriate and reasonable rules with respect to behavior. So for example, a requirement for the animal wearing a vest uh, to be identified as a service animal or a requirement with respect to weight limits. These are uh, conditions and provisions that would be interesting for corporations to consider including as part of a separate rule. Um, now, the last thing I'd like to mention is with respect to a recent case from the CAT once again, in the case of Martin Ver Martis versus Peel Condominium Corporation number 253. Um, this was again another case of an emotional support animal. So. Once again, the CAT confirmed that also, although emotional support animals must be permitted and accommodated, it's appropriate for condominium corporations to impose reasonable conditions. Again, what, for example, weight limits with respect to animals. Um, so to summarize, it's very important to remember that seeking removal of an animal and a pet from a condominium is a very uh, serious remedy. It's a very, it has very drastic consequences. It's not the same thing as asking for removal of a piece of furniture. You know, this is something that has, for those of us who are pet owners, um, it has serious emotional consequences. The pet has a role to play in the day-to-day -day lives of the owner. So it's not just, you're not just saying, take this and remove it. You have to provide an owner with reasonable time. You have to provide, act reasonably and be flexible with respect to enforcing those rules. Um, 
Um, so yeah, the, the second point was the condominium corporation has to behave reasonably. And the last, uh, the last two points I'd like to make is it's always important, as with many other aspects of condominium, uh, of living in a condominium setting, to be open and transparent in your communications with your owners. Um, and the last thing is condominium corporations may wish to consider implementing a separate service animal rule. Um, with respect to my wish, uh, it's actually related to this. I, I was hoping to get, my wish would be to have provisions, uh, pet provisions that are actually enforceable. However, given the recent trend of cases from the cat, we do see that as a positive development. So I, I would say that my wish has partly been granted here. So that's it for me. Thank you. Fantastic, Mo. I love starting the new year on a positive footing. Excellent. And again, as Mo was saying, uh, you know, it's always important in the entire community to be reasonable, to work with owners. Uh, kindness, again, comes into play to make sure that we're all working together to find the most appropriate and best resolution in all situations. So our next uh, speaker is Jessica. And looks like Jess has got her stocking up too, which is very exciting. Quick note. Um, better be listening carefully to some of our sessions because there just might be some sort of contest being announced in the new year. And on that note, the stocking behind me, I've had that stocking since I was six years old and uh, it's still the same one. We use it every year. Just something to keep in the back of your mind. All right, Jessica, you're going to talk to us a little bit about access. So are we talking about Santa Claus accessing us down the chimney or is there a different uh, access issue that we're talking about here? I'm so glad you asked Nancy, happy to provide some comments on access. So as Nancy said, we did receive a couple questions about unit access in cases where an owner or occupant is deceased, a situation where an estate might be involved or where an owner uh, might have gone missing or is MIA. So today I'm going to be talking about the general principles that would apply in these type of situations. Uh, as a first step, um, let's just talk about access to units and the condominium corporation's uh, rights there. So under Section 19 of the Condominium Act, a condominium corporation has the right to enter a unit upon reasonable notice to perform its objects and duties and to exercise its powers. Um, there are often additional provisions in a corporation's declaration and bylaws that might provide more uh, details regarding the condominium corporation's rights of access to units. So in addition to section 19, we recommend that you always check the provisions in your particular declaration and bylaws to make sure you're familiar with those rights. If the corporation needs to enter the unit um, for purposes such as fulfilling its maintenance and repair obligations or when a condominium corporation might have reasonable cause for concern about a problematic condition in the unit, uh, the corporation has a right and in many cases a duty to enter the unit in order to perform the work or investigate and resolve any potential issues. In some circumstances, the corporation may be asked to provide access to a particular unit by a third party, such as a relative, an estate trustee, or the police. And the important thing to remember uh, here is that the corporation should only be gaining access to a unit or facilitating access uh, to a unit for someone else for reasons that relate to the corporation's existing objects and duties. So the condominium corporation, you're not generally in the business of providing access to units and you want to avoid wherever possible having to make that determination about someone else's legal entitlement to access the unit to avoid any potential liability. Um, in some cases, the corporation may be approached by police who want to access the common elements or a particular unit. Uh, there may be a warrant provided for part of the common, common elements, 
or they may uh, request to install surveillance cameras on the common elements. In each case, the corporation is going to have to carefully consider whether it can permit the request, and it may be helpful to reach out to your legal counsel for direction, uh, because these can be tricky issues that require a balancing of privacy rights. We're also aware of a few condominiums where the police have requested that the corporation sign an agency document allowing them to access the common elements. And again, in that case, we recommend you speak to your legal counsel to see whether signing that sort of agreement makes sense in your situation. Um, but if police are requesting that the corporation provide access to a particular unit, again, this is a situation that we need to carefully consider. As a first step, the corporation is going to need to know the reason for the uh, entry to the unit. If the reason for entry relates to one of the objects or duties of the condominium corporation, for example, if the police think there's something occurring in the unit that's likely to cause injury to a person or part of the property, the corporation might determine that it's appropriate to facilitate access to the police and in doing so also perform their own inspection of the unit to make sure uh, there's nothing problematic going on. However, where the purpose for entry does not necessarily align with the corporation's objects and duties, uh, the police can, can still facilitate their own access to the unit. For example, in some situations, they might have to break down the door, but the corporation would not generally be involved in providing that sort of access to the unit where it doesn't otherwise align with the corporation's objects and duties. In situations where an owner is deceased and we have a potential estate trustee or relative who's requesting access to the unit, again, the corporation needs to be careful that they're not providing access to someone who's not otherwise legally entitled to it. In the case of an estate trustee, you're going to want to see clear documentation confirming their entitlement to act on behalf of the deceased owner's estate, their entitlement to access the unit. Uh, in many cases, the condominium will simply be asked to arrange access to the common elements. Um, which is a little less uh, concerning. And then the estate representative will then arrange their own access to the particular unit with their own key or with uh, the help of a locksmith. And this is generally preferable because again, if the corporation can avoid having to determine someone else's legal entitlement to the unit, this helps avoid any argument that access was improperly provided by the corporation. Uh, we recently did have a case of a deceased owner where a relative is working to get appointed as an estate trustee. Uh, and in the meantime, requested access to the unit uh, to make sure there was nothing out of sorts and uh, to get an idea of the state of the unit. And in that case, uh, the corporation did have documentation about the steps being taken to be uh, um, appointed as the estate trustee and provided access to the unit accompanying that relative on the strict understanding that nothing was to be removed from the unit. So it was a visual inspection only. And the corporation was able to use that as an opportunity to make sure there was no trash or food in the unit that needed to be dealt with on a more immediate basis as well. So again, in line uh, with the need um, to fulfill their objects and duties. But again, these sort of situations, we need to deal with them carefully to avoid any criticism down the road that access was provided improperly. For example, in the event something was removed from the unit um, that shouldn't have been by someone who shouldn't have been given access to it. So in summary, where the corporation has a request to access a unit from a third party, this should really only be done when the purpose of the access relates to an existing object and duty of the corporation. Each request should be reviewed on a case-by-case -case basis, and uh, the corporation's legal counsel can assist with this to make sure that the corporation uh, is avoiding any unnecessary liability. So those are my questions about uh, access to the unit. So I guess as a takeaway, uh, if Santa asked you to access the unit, I would say, unfortunately, he's got to figure out his own way in. But to uh, end off, 
um, today, my wish for the condominium community going forward is that we're going to be able to get together again soon in person for some educational and social sessions. And while I think and hope the convenience of these virtual uh, sessions continues, I look forward to being in the same room together soon, hopefully with some cookies and coffee, speaking about the exciting issues facing condos. Fantastic, Jess. I look forward to that as well. I have to say these virtual meetings, I think we're going to see them continuing because while I've never really seen issues in the Eastern Ontario region with getting uh, quorum at condos, we, send, we, t we tend to have excellent turnout in Eastern Ontario for AGMs. The virtual meetings have seen attendance going through the roof, just through the roof. We're seeing, you know, 65, 70% turnout at some of these meetings where before we always had probably around 35 to 45% turnout. So that's great, Jess. I look forward to cookies and coffee and some education in the future as well. Okay, we're going to move over to our next topic. It's budget time, David, for many condominium corporations. What do we need to be thinking about here on these budgets? Thank you, Nancy. So yes, my topic is on budgets and more specifically on budget surpluses. Um, so generally speaking, condominium budgets are prepared yearly with heavy involvement from your condominium corporation's property manager. When things go as planned, there usually wouldn't be a substantive surplus or deficit. But uh, as we know, uh, even with the most well-planned budgets, sometimes unexpected things happen, such as our current pandemic. Now, most of the time we are dealing with budget deficits. Those are much more common and kind of the approach for those are much more well-known, AKA either find savings or uh, you raise additional funds typically via uh, common expense contributions. But what about surpluses? Now, firstly, if your condominium has a substantial surplus for the year, congratulations. It is probably one of the better problems to have. First things first. If, you, if your condominium has a surplus, it is subject to sub, uh, Section 84 Sub 2 of the Condominium Act, which basically dictates how the surplus is to be dealt with. There's really only two options. One, apply the surplus against future common expenses, or two, you pay the surplus into the reserve fund. There is absolutely no option to distribute the surplus to the owners or mortgagees of the uh, units. In other words, there is no ability for the common expense refund. Now, the only exception to this is if the condominium corporation is about to be terminated. It will be up to each individual condominium in concert with the property manager to decide which option would be best for them when dealing with a substantial surplus. But the first option, i.e. if you apply it towards future expenses, I would say there's usually two practical scenarios. Uh, first, you can apply the, expense, uh, the surplus to the expenses for this year's budget. AKA, what you'll have to do is uh, prepare a new budget that will take into account the substantial surplus. And this will logically uh, create new amounts of contributions for every owner. This amount is going to be a lower amount. Uh, but this lower amount will be temporary since eventually the surplus will be used. Alternatively, you can carry the surplus and apply it to next year's budget. This might result in a reduced increase in common expenses or perhaps even nullifying any increase, uh, which would of course be very welcome to uh, owners. 
because we all know that usually common expenses, the only direction to go is up because of inflation and et cetera. Option two uh, under the Condo Act is to transfer the surplus into the reserve fund. The benefit of doing this is that for future years, the pressure to make sure your corporation is meeting the reserve fund contribution targets would be lessened, which usually means that for future years, there will be a smaller contribution amount, which is always a good thing. Uh, so if your condominium has a surplus, congrats, it's a good problem to have. Either option will be fine. Just uh, consult with your property manager and uh, they can help you determine the best approach uh, suitable for your circumstances. Now, uh, notifying the owners is uh, one of the requirements under the Condo Act and uh, the budget is not an exception. Uh, so if you have a substantial surplus, there are certain requirements in terms of notifying the owners. For example, under the Periodic Information Certificate or PIC, there is a section on budgets. So at that applicable section, if your corporation has a substantial surplus, you would note that at that section. Uh, this will also be applicable for status certificates. Uh, usually, you know, when you look at status certificates and you go to the section on budgets, you're really looking for a, oh, is there a substantial deficit or not? But uh, if you have a surplus, you would also put that in there as well for as long as that surplus uh, is existing and until, um, until that surplus is used up. And lastly, of course, there's the annual audit. So, you know, when you go to your AGM and you receive the audit from the auditor, there will be uh, a statement, of, a financial statement, of course, where deficits and or surpluses will be noted. So uh, the, end of this, the gist of the story is, regardless if there's a budget surplus or deficit, there are avenues under the condominium law that allows owners to be made aware of the financial status of the corporation. And lastly, uh, I do have a bit of a comment on a somewhat related topic that I uh, really a question that I received about admin fees. That's a reminder to everyone that condo corporations does not have a right to impose a fine. Admin fees are supposed to cover actual costs incurred by the corporation and they need to be applied consistently. In other words, the general principle is that admin fees should be applicable to all owners because all owners must be treated equally. If an option to do something or to be exempted from doing something is available to one owner, it should be available to all owners. And with that, that's it for me. I'll to give it back to you, Nancy. All right, David. Now, what about your wish? Oh, what yes. What about your I, wish? I almost Can't forgot. get away without giving me a wish. I almost All forgot right. about my wish. So my wish is basically um, with respect to virtual meetings. Uh, I think that if the government could just make that permanent, I think that would just easier for everybody. Like we've already been doing this for almost two years now. I think it's pretty good. So let's just make it permanent. Give it up. Give it. Give the quantum corporation another option to conduct your meetings. And then we don't have to always pay attention to that regulation and when that regulation expires. I think it's just time. Sounds great, David. And so they've got until September 2022. So uh, lots of time to get that finalized. So let's keep our fingers crossed on that one. And now we are going to turn over to one of the most important documents in all of your condo documents, and that is status certificates. Emily, over to you. 
Thanks, Nancy. Uh, yeah, so as Nancy mentioned, my topic will be on status certificates. And the question that we had was regarding the responsibility surrounding uh, who is to issue the status certificate and who is liable for the information contained in the status certificate. So the short answer to this question is that ultimately the corporation, the condominium corporation is responsible for the status certificates that are issued. And this is confirmed in section 76 of the Condominium Act, which states that the corporation is to issue a status certificate to each person who so requests. Now, generally speaking, as we know, um, a purchaser will request a status certificate from the corporation when purchasing or when looking to purchase a unit. The status certificate gives the purchaser important information, not only about the unit that they are interested in, but also about the corporation as a whole. So as a result, the status certificate document could be a potential source of liability for condominium corporations and for the board. So the status certificate needs to be carefully prepared to ensure completeness and accuracy. It's important for the board to be aware of what is contained in the status certificate and to ensure that any knowledge they have regarding current circumstances for the condominium corporation is provided to the individual preparing the status certificate. Now, in many cases, that individual can be the property manager. It's not unusual for the property manager to prepare the status certificates um, in response to any requests or for the property manager to sign the status certificates that are issued. However, the signing authority is subject to the corporation's comprehensive bylaw. So that's something that uh, boards will want to review when if they're considering delegating the uh, responsibility of preparing status certificates to the property manager. So for example, uh, the bylaw may provide that any person may be authorized by board resolution to execute status certificates. And as I mentioned, in some cases, the board may prefer to have the task of preparing status certificates um, delegated to the property manager. And if this is the case, it's important for the board to ensure that the property manager has all current information relevant to the status certificates so that the information can be accurate and complete. It's important to keep in mind also that even if the board delegates the preparation of the status certificates to the property manager or another person, the board is still to be involved in the preparation of the status certificates in, the, um, in terms of what information is to be included, as the board remains the directing entity of the corporation and the directors should be aware of the information um, provided to the requester in the status certificate. So again, the information disclosed needs to both be complete and accurate to the date that the status certificate is issued. Now, as we know, if we've ever taken a look at a status certificate, there is a lot of information that must be included in the document. So I just wanted to touch on a few key provisions that we are often asked to assist with. Um, so paragraph five, which speaks to the status of common expenses for a unit. In particular, it is important to make sure that any language regarding any liens that might be registered on title to that unit is included in this paragraph in the status certificate. As David mentioned, information about the budget should be included in the status certificate, and this um, generally is in paragraphs 10 to 12. And specifically, paragraph 12 speaks to any circumstances that may result in an increase in common expenses. And this can be for a variety of reasons, um, budget surplus budget deficit, as well as litigation or any repairs that are being contemplated at the corporation, at the condominium. Uh, paragraphs 13 to 17, which speak to the corporation's reserve fund. So reserve fund amounts, reserve fund studies that have been completed, any proposed increases in the reserve fund contributions as well. 
paragraph 19, which speaks to litigation. So where the corporation is a party to, uh, is named as a party to a court arbitration or administrative tribunal proceeding. That's important to be included in paragraph 19 of the status certificate. Paragraph 23, which deals with modifications to the common elements and any agreements with owners regarding such modifications. So this section is important as it alerts prospective purchasers to their responsibility for any common element modifications that may have been made to the unit uh, by, by previous owners. And lastly, paragraph 33C, which requires that the corporation attach a list of those types of agreements that are listed in sections 111, 112, and 113 of the Condominium Act, among other documents. So these agreements um, can include things such as management agreements, as well as mutual use or shared property agreements. And just overall, we, we always recommend to all condominium corporations that the directors during their board meetings make uh, the review of the information within status certificates a regular exercise just to make sure that everything is up to date, that it's current and accurate. So whenever a request for a status certificate is received, that information that's provided um, is accurate and complete. And of course, if there are any questions or concerns, our recommendation is to come speak to us or your legal counsel. Uh, now turning to my wish for for this holiday season. Uh, my wish is about the condo insurance crisis that we're experiencing. As many of you probably are aware, um, there are many cases where condos are unable to obtain insurance or are facing extremely large deductibles as a part of their policies. So my wish is that the condominiums industry would receive some helpful solutions or guidance regarding uh, what we can do to, to improve the situation. And um, we know that the province has recently issued a notice calling for feedback on this issue. So I'm hopeful that we may be able to see some results soon. Fantastic, Emily. I think that's just one of the best wishes that we've heard as well. And uh, also just a prompt for anybody who's in attendance here today, if you haven't already had an opportunity to provide the government with some feedback, please go ahead and Google it. Just Google condo insurance crisis ministry, and I'm sure the link will uh, pop up. Or you can check out our blog and you'll have information there as well. A great wish. We do need to see some relief for the industry. Well, we've tried to be really respectful of your time today. It's exactly one o'clock. We're going to wrap up our session here today. Thank you so much for attending. Uh, stay tuned in the new year. We have some fun and exciting things happened. I may have said something about a contest. We may also have some uh, primers on new condos and deficiencies coming up in the new year. So stay tuned. Uh, watch out for our blogs. Watch out for this uh, condo podcast. And in the meantime, spend lots of time with family, friends, put your feet up, have some hot chocolate, get cozy by the fireplace or whatever other cozy place you want to be at. And we wish you all a wonderful, safe and happy holiday season. Thank you and have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can subscribe to us on your favorite podcast app. Conopedia is brought to you by Davidson Hu Allen, a boutique condominium law firm servicing Eastern Ontario. You can find more about our firm on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, or on our website at davidsonconolaw.ca. This podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended to provide legal opinion or advice, which cannot be given without knowing the facts of a specific situation. Use of this podcast does not establish a solicitor and client relationship. The intro and outro music is provided by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com.